Pastor Joe. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we learn from Naaman's great conversion that you would teach us who you are and you would teach us who we are supposed to be. Give us the boldness of his servants and give us the humility that he was required to have as he met you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning by telling you about backpacking French surfers. Uh, when I was doing my ministry apprenticeship, I, I served for a couple of years under a man who was uh, not the rector but the curate in charge of Bondi. Uh, and so we, we had to do what any good minister does and that is spend time with the locals, uh, which meant that a couple of times a week we, we were required to go surfing at Bondi. It was a very, very tough gig. I, to these days, I, it's... Anyway, I don't really want to talk about it. It was so hard. But uh, we'd be out there sitting out the back, the azure waters, the crisp sky, the beautiful waves rolling in, and just people everywhere. And as happens when you're surfing, you you often sit out the back, you're waiting for the next wave, and you get chatting with whoever's there. You're all sitting there. You've got nothing else to do but kind of look at each other and look at the waves. So, you know, hey, how are you? What, what, What do you do? Uh, very easy for two ministers sitting out the back there. What do you do? Very easy to get the conversation talking about God. Anyway, one week we're sitting there. The, the waves were pretty nice. So there was a bit of a wait between sets, so we had some time. And there was just one other guy in the particular spot where we were. And we got chatting. He was a French backpacker. So what do you guys do? Well, we're ministers. I'm, I'm a trainee minister. Well, that's very interesting. What's, what do you do as a minister? Well, you know, we try to introduce people to God. Have you met God? <laughs> can we tell you about Jesus? We need two minutes to do two ways to live. I don't have a pen on me, but I can draw the pictures in the water. Right? Anyway, we're talking some more. He says, well, you're a trainee. What's required in becoming a minister? What sort of training do you have to go through? He said, well, I'm, I'm doing a two-year apprenticeship, after which I'm going to go to a, essentially a seminary, a university, for another four years to study. He was a bit shocked. But you got to, you do four years. Well, what do you... What do you study? Do you, do you like learn all the religions? Do you study all the books? And, and my, my, my rector, he says, no, no, we just study the one book. We just study Christianity. We, we just learn about the one God. And this French guy was absolutely stunned. He said, what do you, what do you mean you just learn about one? Why, why don't you learn about the rest? I mean, there's so many of them. There's so much to learn. Why would you spend four years studying one book? To which the reply came, well, when you've found the God who is real and you've found the God who works, why do you need any others? And the wave came. He caught it. We didn't come back to the conversation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one God and there is one God who saves. There is one God who gives life and who takes it. There is one God who is real and powerful and above all and over all, such that if you know that one God, why would you need any others? Now, if you remember last week, we heard about the the scandal of the Bible, that great problem people have, the scandal of grace the God who is righteous, who saves the unrighteous, right? God who takes wicked people and saves them into heaven. We heard last week of Manasseh, that mass-murdering, tyrannical dictator who slew thousands of his own subjects, who's in heaven, (laughs) 
And if you missed that one, make sure you go and listen to it. This week, we meet a man who has that same, the, 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 the next scandal in line, so to speak, that there is only one God who saves. That happens to him. So what I want to do this morning, same as we've been doing for the last little while, I want to retell Naaman's story for you and then we're going to learn, I've got six lessons today from Naaman. So let's, uh, let's meet Naaman. Aram, Israel's neighbour, they're enemies, they fight, they war, Aram usually wins. King of Aram has his commander, Naaman, successful man and fascinatingly in our verses, if you've got 2 Kings 5 open still there, successful in verse 1 because the Lord gives victory to Aram. Always interesting when God is using the nations around Israel for his own purposes. It's not like God is limited, constrained to his own. And yet Naaman, for all his success and all his power, has a problem, doesn't he? Skin disease. Now look, what exactly it was, not sure. Unlikely to be Hansen's disease, which is modern day leprosy. As far as we can tell, that hadn't arrived to this area yet. But something that is visible and hampering and, and limiting to him. In Israel, if you had this sort of skin disease, you were, you were like shunned, you're cast out of the camp until you come back clean, right? This is in some ways almost a death notice. Anyway, Naaman's going through his life, presumably trying to get cured of his disease, and one day a servant, and nay, a slave of his, that he has stolen from Israel, she thinks to pipe up and say, excuse me, it's a, it's a bit of a shame we're not in Israel. <laughs> I mean, that's a subtle little dig. It's a bit of a shame that you stole me from there instead of you coming over, because there is a prophet there, and he could have healed you. How desperate do you think Naaman was? I, imagine this. Imagine if someone had said to uh, Osama bin Laden, okay, when he was still alive, if someone, someone had said to him, uh, actually, this disease requires you to go to New York to see the specialist. You've got to be kidding me, right? You, you're telling Naaman that he's got to go to Israel, the enemy nation that he raids and brings slaves back from, that he's victorious against, to go and see their prophet. Well, anyway, he says, Let's ask, we should try it. He goes and tells the king, hey, king, apparently there's a guy in Israel who can help me with this problem. And the king goes, man, I want you well. You're my number one man. Off you go. I'll send you a letter. I'll send you with presumably security and an entourage, right? A, a ton, a literal ton of precious metal to go. And they must have had a massive cavalcade. The chariots, the horses, the servants, the security. They get there and poor king of Israel, listen to the letter that he gets. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, am I God, killing and giving life, that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? I mean, fair enough, right? The letter didn't quite get it right. The letter, which was supposed to say, take this man to your prophet, just said, when the letter comes to you, note, I've sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease, for you to take this uncurable thing and cure it. Fair enough, right? The king of Israel goes, man, you're just picking a fight. I mean, how you, what do I do? This is the commander of his armies. This is the guy who keeps beating us. And he's here. I wonder how strong the temptation was to just, right? Like, but I can't. We're going to start a war. 
but he asked me to heal him. I can't heal him. So I sent him back uncured and we have a war or I kill him and we have a war. <clears throat> Elisha hears of it. It's damning on the king of Israel that that wasn't his first thought. Because did you notice, he says, am I God killing and giving life? This man knew the God who gives life and who takes it away. He knew the God who could heal with but a word. Doesn't even think of it. Elisha reaches out and says, dude, just chill a bit. Not exactly his words, right? My king, my king, why are you so upset? Just send him to me. And then he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. Again, notice the subtle jab. You should have known that there is a prophet in Israel. You should have sent him to me. Send him over. We'll sort him out. Right, so off Naaman goes. He pulls up in front of them all. I imagine the entourage again, the, the weary horses, the worn out chariots, I don't know about cracked windshields or whatever it is that they get on their chariots from riding so long, the servants, the dust, the dirt, the... Mark that he pulls up expecting a display of power and a royal welcome. I mean, after all, he's the commander of the armies. He's used to being treated a certain way, thank you very much. He's used to being made much of, and he's expecting a display of power from God, right? Whatever it is that this God that can heal me can do, well, it's going to be big. <laughs> and instead, servant pokes his head out the door. Oh, oh yeah, just go bath. Seven times will do it. You'll be all right. Naaman gets angry. A little bit upset, right? I was telling myself, he says, he will surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord. He's got him. Wave his hand and I'll be cured. You want me to go and have a bath? Well, in the river, like we've got nicer rivers at home. I, I had a bath, thank you. Just last month. I mean, what's your problem, right? Go and bath seven times. Saved by a servant again. The servant says, if, if he'd asked something hard of you, you would have been like, all right, let's do it. If he'd given you like a, a Dungeons and Dragons style quest, right? you've got to climb the lofty peak and pick one, only one, and only one petal from the rare moonflower that blossoms but once a year. Hold your breath while you do it and travel back down to the depths and take it to the witch who will make a potion and then drink that. Like if he'd asked you to do that, you would have been like, all right, let's go, let's go do this. He asked you to do something easy. Why don't you just, you're here, right? Like, okay, says Naaman, you're right. He gets in, he starts bathing once, twice, three times. And they bring enough soap for it, four, five. Gets to six, nothing's changed. He gets out, he's still like, oh, nothing. All right, we're going in for number seven. And he comes out clean. In fact, did you notice the description of how he comes out? Verse 14, he became like the skin of a small boy. He got baby bottom skin. Isn't that lovely? Just all soft and puffy and supple and just all oh, so squidgy. I don't think anyone did that to Naaman. But right, like that's what an incredible thing. And Naaman is self-aware enough to realize it. Listen to the ending, come down to verse 15. Naaman, the whole company went back to the man of God they stood before him and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Please, accept a gift from your servant. Elijah said, no. As the Lord lives, I don't want it. 
Naaman goes, no, please, man, no, I don't want it. Man, that's not a small fortune. A ton of silver and gold. Clothing fit for kings. No, thanks. Listen to Naaman's response. I mean, what a converted man. If, if, If not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any god but the Lord. He's like, I want to take enough dirt home that I can worship on this hallowed ground. That I can connect to this God even when I'm not here because he is real, he is true, he is powerful, he is the saviour. In fact, so sensitive does he become that he asks for permission that when he takes his master, the king of Aram, into his master's temple, presumably he's got a little bit of trouble walking and I have to help him bow, it may look like I am bowing, please forgive me for that. Elisha says, go in peace. What an amazing conversion. What a story. Now I want to draw out six lessons for us from Naaman. So it's a simple one this week. Well, we we can get through it fairly quickly. And yet so powerful and so profound. And here's the first lesson. It's the same one we've seen every week, but I want to focus on it slightly different today. God can save anyone. You've heard it however many weeks we've been going in a row now. We had Nebuchadnezzar, the angry, abusive, violent, proud man. We had Manasseh, the wicked one. We have Naaman. Now, I want to point out that it is God who can save anyone. We come back to my French surfing, mate. The the pluralism of our society. All gods have got something to them. All gods can do some good. All gods can teach you. All gods can... Do you think Naaman didn't try his gods? But being prepared to travel into enemy territory, I can, I'd be willing to bet, I mean it's not in the Bible, right? but I'd be willing to say that he went to every single one of their gods and said to every single one of them, what do I have to do to be clean? And whatever they told him, he tried. Did any of them save him? Obviously not. In fact, that line of his is so telling. I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. My French backpacking mate was flabbergasted that we'd only study the one. But we've found the one. We found the one who is real, who is powerful, who saves, who transforms, who converts. We've found him. Why bother with the rest? Especially when they are nothing. Now, our world says that that is the ultimate arrogance, right? How could you possibly say that the rest are nothing? Now, the Bible's answer to that is, well, that would be a true claim, except that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's the answer the Bible gives. You can go read 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul pushes backwards, and it says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then everything is a lie. Everything we believe is a sham. None of it works. We're still in our sins. The dead are gone and lost. Everything's pointless, basically. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, and he has been, then it's true and God is real and his salvation is effective and our sin is forgiven and the dead are not lost but are safe for eternity. 
It's not based on us and our claim. It's not based on me having superior knowledge. It's not based on personal pride or arrogance. It's based on the historical reality that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised to new life, never to die again. All through Acts, the speeches they make, it always comes down to that. Christ has been raised from the dead. And can I say to you today, wherever you stand with God, that is the central fact that you need to hold on to if you're going to come to God rightly, that Jesus is alive and he invites you into a living relationship with him today. Once you know that, you will know the God who saves. But see, the God who saves is also the God that can save anybody. It's such a weird chapter. I mean, so many of them are. <laughs> you start reading them and you're like, what? God was giving Naaman victory. God was taking a foreign nation who's pagan, who's idolatrous, who has nothing to do with him, who's the enemy of his people, and giving them military conquest over his own. It's such a strange idea. This pagan, who knows what sort of religion this man was in, God worked in his life. This Israelite slave girl that had been stolen, who knows how long ago who has the boldness to speak up in front of this warlord. The servant who speaks and says, well, we should just do the easy thing. All the things that God has in act, the washing. Seven times. I mean, what's different from number seven to number six? What's different from number five to number three? No, it's just, it wasn't the washing itself. It was God. So can I say to you that if you feel like you were born into a particular religious view and you are therefore locked into it, that God invites even you to come and know him. Or maybe you were born into the, the Hindu caste system and you think, well, that's it, I'm locked in. Your parents were Buddhists and you think, well, I, the cycle, that's just me, I'm in it. You're, or you're Orthodox of some sort. Roman Catholic, you think, well, actually, this is my people, my community, I belong here, I cannot leave it. God can save anybody and he does it by washing. <laughs> Not washing in the Jordan River seven times, Strangely, by washing with blood, the blood that Jesus shed as he died, that washes us of our sin. Not so much the leprosy, the skin disease, but the, the heart disease to make us clean before him. Lesson number one, God can save anybody. God num lesson number two, God saves people despite themselves. God saves people despite themselves. Naaman wasn't exactly your candidate for salvation. You think of the people that are like, oh, he's close, she's close to giving their life to Jesus. You know, they're seekers, they're, they're listening, they're humble, they want to find God. Naaman, he's the opposite, right? Warmonger, enslaving people, responds in rage when things aren't going his way. I mean, it's his reaction to, to Elisha. Who do you think I am? Right? Like, full of pride and the arrogance of the person who's used to getting his own way. What an anti-God person this character was. His, his, his reaction, his personality, his works, everything is against God's people. I don't know, you, you pick the media personality who likes writing the scathing articles of Sydney Anglicans. You pick the politician who's like, those Christians, we've got to go against them. You pick the, the, the activist Right, who thinks that Christians are 
causing people to commit suicide. You, you pick your family member who won't have a bar of God, your neighbour who's so culturally enmeshed in something else. God saves people despite themselves. He produces in them the humility required. He is the one who by his spirit and by his people will use what is necessary to see people humble. Which ought to cause us, his people, as we are hungry for his heart, as we go about engaging and evangelise, to depend on him. The, the, the hardest of hearts that we look at, the strangest of people who seem the furthest away from the gospel, God saves people despite themselves. Lesson number three. Don't let the hard thing get in the way of the easy thing. Don't let the hard thing get in the way of easy things. Isn't that fascinating for Naaman that it took his servant to point out what was happening? He was told a very easy thing to do. Just go and have seven baths. Sounds really pleasant, honestly. Like, what's wrong with that? I'd love one bath. Seven? Great. You can alternate warm water, cold water, warm water, cold water. I don't know, right? Like it'd be re refreshing and... That's too easy, he says. See, the hard thing was his ego. The hard thing was his pride. That's what I mean when I say don't let the hard thing get in the way of the easy thing. Don't let your own pride get in the way of things that really are easy. God says, come to my son. Put your trust in him. It's very simple. Come and talk to me. Tell me you're sorry and let's start again. I've paid it. I've done the hard work. It's really easy. And yet how often our pride will stand in the way of that. No, thank you. I want to do it my way. In Naaman, he had his own ideas. Didn't he? he says, right, as I came, didn't I think to myself, this is what's going to happen. This is what this God must be like. Don't let your own ideas of who God is supposed to be and what he's supposed to be like get in the way of who he is. Just come to my son, he says. Come and trust. Don't let your pride get in the way. And I can also point out, this isn't quite about salvation as such, but it's often true in other areas of life as well, by the way. Don't, don't let your self-ego get in the way of things that are obvious and easy and good for others. Right? You're in your marriage and you, you can see what you need to do for your, your spouse and you're like, no, they've got to do their thing first, right? You've got your friends and maybe they've wronged you or maybe, no, no, I've got until they sort themselves out, right? I'm not going to talk to so-and-so because of what... Right? Just don't let your pride get in the way of doing the right thing, <laughs> not necessarily the easy thing at that level, Although often it is. It's not that hard to say, I'm sorry. Unless your ego is getting in the way. The words themselves are very simple, right? I'm sorry. Lesson number four. Conversion changes people. Now, that's a little bit of a tautology, isn't it? Because the word conversion means to change, to convert, to take something and make it into something else that it wasn't. Our great conversions, the people change. I mean, what a change in Naaman. This is, 
I love Naaman's response. I really do. Can I, can I take some of your dirt, please? I mean, that's just wonderful, right? A little bit misguided. God isn't in the dirt. He's not a geographically bound dirt. But what a wonderful heart. I want to be close to this God, even when I have to go away from him. Please, can I just take some of the dirt with me to be near him? I love his heart as he says, look, actually, I've thought of a situation that I'm going to be in where it might seem like I'm worshipping other gods. I, I just want to let you know about it and ask your forgiveness beforehand. I, I've got to help my king bow. It might look like I'm, you know, like, poor bloke, like to get him back up again, I've kind of got to get down as well. So can I, I, just, I love that change. The soft conscience, tender towards what's going to happen around him. The desire to worship. Friends, coming to the Lord Jesus produces profound change in someone's life. Now, we don't promise that if you come to Jesus, like Naaman, all your ills will be healed, that all your financial problems will go away, that all your relational difficulties will just... None of that is promised in Scripture. The promise is an eternity with God. And yet, as Jesus enters someone's life, as people are converted, substantial change occurs. And so often... All of those things come with it. Seek first the kingdom of God and all the rest will be added. It's true. God, he says, is now my God. Now I wonder just for us as God's people, is Naaman a rebuke to us? Do you hunger for God such that you'd go and dig up our lawn to take some dirt home with you if, if that's what it took to be close to God? Please don't, the lawn's looking great. Right, but are you, do, do you have that hunger for who God is, to be able to worship, to, to bow before him with all that you are and all that you have? To be with his people arm in arm, celebrating his goodness, rejoicing in the salvation he's won for us. Oh, to have Naaman's heart. Is your conscience as tender as Naaman's? That you look at your own life and you think, actually, right there, that might well lead me to worship another God. Or it might even look like I'm worshipping another God. Ours is harder, right? Because we don't have the, the array of pagan gods before us. There's no pagan temple that most of us are going to walk into that it looks like we're worshipping. Our, our gods are, are less defined. The God of idolatry and greed. The God of comfort hedonism right these these are so many more of our gods that we're tempted towards oh to have Naaman's soft conscience but it's also worth pointing out that elisha says to him go in peace right it's, it's okay man you're going to walk into a foreign temple and bow down it's that's fine god knows your heart god's not going to get cross at you because you're doing the right thing in that context if you keep your heart straight before god you'll be okay Lesson number five, God will use ambassadors. Again, we've seen this a couple of times, the right word at the right time, to speak what is needed. Brave, I mean, can you imagine being that Israelite girl? In a truly patriarchal society, properly masochistic, a warlord who you know has killed, who knows how many of your people, he enslaved you, to stand and to say... Gee, I wish you'd met my God. <laughs> he can save you. He's got what you need. To be like the servant who confronts Naaman in his fury 
and says, dude, you're being an idiot. I mean, just slightly more politely than that, right? He asks you to do an easy thing. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. The bravery of them, the boldness. I, I often get a sense, listening to these Bible people, I feel like, well, it's different for them, right? It's easier for them. I don't know why I think that. Anytime you have someone in the Bible who speaks out, I'm like, oh, they, they were different. That, that's not me. I mean, God doesn't know my circumstances. He doesn't know what my boss is like. I mean, right, if I stood up in front of my boss one week and said, I'm sorry, look, I've got to tell you, but my God has what you need. Your life's a mess. You're lost. And if you'd only come and meet my God, he will sort you out. Like, you don't know my boss. You don't know how he'd react. You don't know what he'd do to me if I said that to him. They're, they're Bible people. They're different. Really? <laughs> You're going to compare yourself to the slave who stood up to Naaman? Both of them, in fact. To Stephen, who stood before the crowd and proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as they killed him with stones? They didn't have it easier. They just had God. They knew that when they said to the person in front of them, you better come and meet my God because he's got what you need, they were 100% confident that should that person come and meet their God, they will find the one who has what they need. God will use his ambassadors. I'll tell you the last lesson, and we'll go a little bit quickly on this one. The last lesson is the one that Jesus draws from this passage. Did you know that Naaman is mentioned in the New Testament? Anyone know that? Anyone know where Naaman gets mentioned? Oh, I couldn't leave it hanging. Give you homework. No, no, we, we got time. No prophet is welcome in his hometown, Jesus says. That was his lesson to them. As he, as he arrives in his hometown, they say, well, we're going to see the miracles, right? And Jesus says, no, you're not because you guys aren't going to honour me. No prophet is welcome in his hometown. And one of the examples he gives is Naaman. He says, in all of Israel, there were many lepers. The only one that was healed was Naaman the Syrian. Why? Why didn't the other lepers come to Elisha to be healed? Because a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Not one of them came to ask him. Not one of them thought to themselves, there is a prophet in Israel who speaks for the Lord God Almighty. I'm going to go and find healing. There's, there's a truth to this. The people are extra sceptical and resistant to guidance and wisdom from, from the familiar, from the, from the common, from the ordinary, from the everyday. I mean, imagine you stood before your boss and you said, I just have to tell you that I know the living God of the universe who has exactly what you need. You'd be like, who do you think you are? You go around making claims like that, whatever, man. You're just Joe from accounting, right? Uh, who, who destroyed all those bottles of beer. I mean, I, like, uh, why should I listen to you, yeah? Like, it's not, it's not really... It's not really accounting, it was engineering, but, you know. No prophet is accepted. So we, we need to have that as a reality before us as we go and engage. Actually, it may well be that we are considered common, that our hard message is just treated with contempt. Who do you think you are to tell me these things? The message just washes over people with no effect. Now, if that's you, and you've been coming here for so long that this is now commonplace, 
that the words you hear from the front have become those of the prophet that you just ignore. Please stop. Today, stop and listen. Today, heed it. Tomorrow, it'll wash over again. Next week, it might well be gone. Learn from Naaman. Hear God's word and act on it. It came to him through a little servant girl. It comes to you today through me. Stop and listen. Come to God. He has what you need. I'll tell you what, it applies for our engaging in our evangelism as well. Right? Be aware of it. Maybe you're frustrated. I keep talking and he just ignores it. She just brushes it off. That's okay. Persevere. God can work. And I'll tell you what, it's why it matters that we work together as well. Often you've been saying it over and over and over again. Someone else walks in, says it once, and the person goes, Oh! And you go, but I've been telling you for years. You're like, what are you? That's okay, it's how it works. Right, we're bringing the bishop out to speak at a dinner. Okay, let's bring out a, a, a big name. Maybe this will be more than the commonplace and the ordinary. Maybe this will be the time when they hear and they believe. Well, six lessons from Naaman. I, I often find myself thinking of my, my French backpacking surfer. Not least because the surf really was good that day. I did enjoy it. But I remember his amazement that there, we would think that there's only one God worth learning of. That there's only one God to spend six years in formative training. What a waste, he thought, when you could be exploring so many philosophies and ideas. I, I'm sad for that man, to be honest. And I pray for him that he would, like Naaman, meet the one God of the world, who is the God who saves, who washes away sin, just as he washed away Naaman's leprosy. We know that God. Where else? would we go? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Naaman and the work you did in his life and we praise you that you are the one true God. We praise you that through Naaman you showed Israel that you are real, through Naaman you showed the world who you are and through Naaman you continue to convict us that you are the God who saves. We praise you for your work in us to wash us clean of our sin and we ask for the boldness of those servants that we might speak the words that are right at the right time that you would use to save many. In Jesus' name.